0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Hey friends, just a quick note. This is going to sound a little different because this message uh, was recorded uh, in a studio all by myself, (laughs) so it'll sound a little different than a message usually given in front of an audience. Nevertheless, I hope you'll stay with us as we dive into the big book cover to cover. This is the big book, cover to cover, where each week we are looking at one book of the Bible. And today we launch into 2 Chronicles. Remember these books, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Samuel were essentially one book, but our translators broke them in two, so the material was a little easier for us to handle. Now, First Chronicles is essentially emphasizing the temple complex in national life. Second Chronicles is emphasizing the importance of the temple in national life. So while first chronicles on the one hand condemns the rationalism in national life, the idea that we can do our own thing and get along without god, second chronicles condemns this ritual in national life. Or to put it real simply, the idea that what satisfies god is external conformity rather than our internal reality. So all of 2 Chronicles is going to be a negative lesson, in a sense, because of what the Israelites have done. They're recognizing God in a formal way, but not in an actual, not in a legitimate way. Uh, Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson and their helpful book, Talk Through the Bible, say it this way. The book of Second Chronicles parallels First and Second Kings, but it virtually ignores the northern kingdom of Israel. Now remember, just as a break here, Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south. This is the divided kingdom, continuing with Boa and Wilkinson, because of its false worship and refusal to acknowledge the temple in Jerusalem. Chronicles focuses on those kings who pattern their life and reign after godly King David, and it gives an extended treatment to such zealous reformers as Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joaz, Hezekiah, and Joash. Now, here's the money quote. The temple and temple worship are central throughout the book as benefiting a nation whose worship of God is central to its own survival. Benefiting a nation whose worship of God is central to its own survival. So the book's going to start with Solomon's incredible glorious temple, and then it's going to end with Cyrus's edict to rebuild the temple. And the book is going to cover over 400 years. Now let's step back a little bit and get the book in two sections. Chapter 1 to 9 of Second Chronicles covers about 40 years of time. Chapters 10 to 36 cover 393 years. So the first nine chapters, 40 years, the 10 to 36, almost 400 years. So it's 10 times the amount of information. Now, during this first 40 years, we're reading about God's blessing and the temple's completion, while the remainder chapters speak of the prosperity, but then, of course, the fall of Judah, the temple's destruction, and a very sad ending. Let me give you a quick survey of three portions of Second Chronicles, and then I want to draw out four overarching lessons. So the first is Solomon's Prayer. And that's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of God upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, "Truly He is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting." Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice to the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts, and the Levites also, with the instruments of music to the Lord, which King David had made for giving praise to the Lord, for his lovingkindness is everlasting. Whenever he gave a praise by their means, while the priest on the other side blew trumpets, and all Israel was standing. Then Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offering and the fat offering Of the peace offering, because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to contain the burnt offering, the grain offering, and that of the fat. So Solomon observed the feast at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him. A very great assembly came from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly for the dedication of the altar. They observed seven days and the feast seven days. Then on the twenty-third day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents, rejoicing and happy of heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and Solomon and to his people Israel. Verse 11, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. We'll stop there for now. So this is Solomon's prayer. The ark has been moved from the city of David, which was a temporary tent in Jerusalem. Remember the ark of the covenant, the tabernacle complex was portable. Now we have a permanent temple complex where the ark will be placed and the implements around it. Solomon's prayer for wisdom and knowledge to rule this great people is a fascinating insight on who he is at this chapter in his life. And so God grants him otherworldly wisdom. And since he didn't ask for riches or for wealth or for honor, God, in his lavish grace, blesses Solomon anyway. So he not only gives them wisdom to rule this great people, but he blesses them with riches, wealth, and power as well. Now, if you're a detailed person, you know that from Deuteronomy 17, kings were not supposed to multiply horses or trust in chariots, as Psalm 20 verse 7 reminds us. Why? Because they would rely on their power. They'd rely on their military rather than relying on God. The text doesn't strictly prohibit them from ever having any horses or chariots. It seems that the multiplication of these or building great armies was what God prohibited. And obvious, when you go to Israel today, you'll see stables during Herod's time. And so there were stables for chariots and horses in antiquity. And there's no reason to doubt that Solomon did a similar thing by multiplying these horses and chariots. Anyway, Solomon's prayer is the first big portion of Second Chronicles. Then we want to think a little bit about his building projects, which were two, actually, the temple and the palace. And this covers chapter 2 through 7. Of Second Chronicles. Now this is an extraordinary building project. Approximately 200,000 workers and uh, candidly some of these are conscriptive, some of these are slaves, they're indentured servants who have to work on this project. Solomon had a relationship with, it's either Huram or Hiram depending on your version of the English Bible. Uh, he was the king of Tyre and this relationship goes back to David's time where David was a friend of the king of Tyre. Huram uh, sends a man named Huram Abi who was not just a general contractor but he was more of an artisan, a craftsman, we might say an engineer, and he had gifts and talents and skills that were unequaled in the ancient Near East. Now don't forget David had spent the last portion of his reign getting all these building materials together So Solomon could start the building project. Uh, David had wanted to build this temple for the Lord, but you recall, God said, no, uh, you're a man of bloodshed, you're a man of war, Uh, you can build your own home, but your son, the one that follows you, will build my temple. So the temple complex construction begins 971 years B.C. and continues for 40 years to 931 B.C. Again, in 2 Chronicles chapter 1-9, to 9, we read this with extraordinary detail. It's like reading a blueprint. And even though it's brief, it is remarkable in detail. For the first time in the Bible, in chapter 3, verse 1, the precise location of Mount Moriah is mentioned. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now, what's important about this and often missed, that threshing floor was a purchase David made. And you recall the story, Ornan was willing to give David the piece of land. But David said, no, I'm not going to take this without paying for it. And this ancient Near Eastern transaction was very important in the land and the temple complex that's later going to be built. Even more, we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, verses 2 to 14, and that's when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he takes him up to a Mount Moriah, and you remember the story, they have the wood, they have the fire, they don't have a sacrifice, and uh, Abraham binds his son Isaac to the wood and is about to offer him as a sacrifice, and the Lord stops him. And it became known as, uh, we say Jehovah-Jireh more accurately. It would be Yahweh-Jireh, Yahweh-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And that was the name Abraham gave the area after the Lord provided the ram instead of his own son. But, of course, we're seeing a double entendre here. He's providing the sacrifice, which, of course, will be his son. What's important about this complex and this mountain at this point is the name. The place of his name is going to be the place of his son. And this will be the one true provision for sin. So if we go back to Abraham offering Isaac on a hill, that's the place where the temple complex is built. And if you look today at a picture on your computer online, you'll see the so-called Dome of the Rock, or the, the Moslems have built on top of the Herodian Plateau. And a little bit south of there, probably, was where the uh, temple complex was. Now, let's get a picture of the dimensions of this as much as we can without looking at visual images. A cubit is about 18 inches, so it's pretty easy to do the math. The bronze altar would be 30 feet by 30 feet by 15 feet. The cast sea, think of it as a giant basin of water, is 45 feet in circumference, 15 feet wide and about seven and a half feet tall. The two pillars of this, which I I love the story of these two pillars, um, uh, Horam is so proud of them, he gives them names, Jachin and Boaz. And these pillars were 60 feet tall. Uh, These were the centerpiece attraction to the temple complex. Add to this, there are 12 oxen, 10 basins, 10 lampstands, 10 tables, a 100 golden bowls, and hundreds of other tools that are all part of conducting the ministry of the temple complex. Why all this stuff? Sacrifice is a messy, bloody business. And all these materials from the bowls and the instruments and the water and the basins and the tables to conduct these sacrifices, you're you're butchering animals. You're bleeding them. You're taking out the unclean parts of them. You're burning them. You have to deal with the ashes. It is a big ritualistic sacrificial system. In chapter 417, we get an interesting tidbit uh, where this is happening. On the plain of Jordan, the king cast them in the clay ground between Sukkot and Zerda. Now, this idea of this clay, most scholars and archaeologists are in agreement that the casting process was like what we call lost wax casting today. So if you have a, a ring that's a unique ring, uh, envision a jeweler using a pretty uh, sturdy wax like a bar of soap, but sturdier, and he or she carves intricately this design of what looks like a class ring, let's say, with your class motto or logo and the date on it. That then is put in a box of sand that's compacted around it, and then the gold is poured into a small opening, and the gold displaces the wax, and what's left is a gold ring or a gold ornament, that's called lost wax casting. From what we know of antiquity, this was an art at the time, but it took a guy like Huram or Hiram to know how to do it at this level. Many of the pieces of furniture that were made are overlaid with gold as well. So the craftsmanship, the engineering was remarkable with what Huram is doing for all these temple instruments. So the temple's complete. Solomon brings all these dedicated implements and instruments to the house of God, and the centerpiece, of course, is what? The Ark of the Covenant. This has been at David's home, which is no more than a few hundred yards below where the Temple Mount is built. And this is a crescendo of sacrifice. There's musicians, there's orchestras, there's worship. The glory of the Lord fills the house of the Lord, and the glory is so overwhelming it drives out the priest who are offering these sacrifices. Now, a couple of sidebar notes about the temple. The complex is built to house the centerpiece, which is the Ark of the Covenant, the box. Secondly, essentially the complex, as I mentioned, was designed for sacrifice. From the first fruit, from the grain offerings, the offering of flour, sin offerings, and the main system, of course, was animals. Animals. Uh, That was lambs, goats, cows, and bulls. I know many people today are vegan and plant-based and all this. In antiquity, worship of Yahweh required blood. And there was no fulfillment of the law apart from blood. And, of course, the blood of the Lamb of God will be an image from antiquity that John, in his Gospel 129, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It, It will require the blood of the Lamb of God. Well, while these tools and utensils are handcrafted, they're essentially like fine pieces of jewelry, but they're not items of worship. People often miss this. Uh, even the ark itself was not an item to be worshipped. The ark was a box about 27 inches by 27 inches by 45 inches, or to round it up a little bit, it's about a little bit more than 2 feet by 2 feet by 4 feet. And this contained the Ten Commandments, which I believe were two copies. We always see those pictures in Sunday school classes of uh, two stones that have kind of a, a, a rounded top. And on one stone, it's Commandments 1 to 5, and the second one 6 to 10. And they're you know kind of hinged in the middle. And more than likely, they were a copy. So ten laws on each of those panels. One of those stone panels was put in the ark. The other one would be for using it uh, and, and for teaching from it. So this box, 27 by 27 by 45 inches, is containing perhaps both, at least one of the copies of the Decalogue. It contains manna. it contains Aaron's rod, and this is interesting because Aaron's rod, you remember, budded. Um, for it to fit inside that box, even diagonally, the rod can only be about 50 inches tall. So you don't picture this giant staff that's often depicted in movies and cartoon. You know, it, it's a smaller rod. And uh, some rabbinical studies believe that the design of this rod and yielded about a 10-pound stick. So think of more of a, you know, a, a heavy-duty, smaller stick than some tall you know, staff like Moses is depicted holding. So those are just some few sidebar notes about the temple complex. Most importantly, nothing in there was to be worshipped in and of itself. These weren't icons or artifacts to be worshipped. They were instruments to worship the name of the Lord. In chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, Solomon has a dedication prayer. And I won't read the whole prayer, but I would commend to you, uh, this is worth uh, several days, if not weeks, in your Personal devotion. It is a remarkable prayer, and let me just read a few strophes from it because of its richness. Uh, Beginning in chapter six, verse twelve, Solomon he stood before the altar of the Lord, in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits by five cubits and three cubits high. That's about seven and a half feet by four and a half feet tall. And he set it up in the midst of the court. He stood on it, and he knelt his knees on it in the presence of the assembly, and then he spread his hands toward heaven. And then he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts." And then he goes on with this incredible review of history of God's great faithfulness to Israel and the emphasis of this prayer. Think about this. Arguably the wisest king who ever lived on the planet gives this expansive vertical acknowledgement to God as a sovereign. So he acknowledges Yahweh by addressing my people and my name is the place where the foundation was established. God chose my people, he chose Jerusalem to be the place where he placed my name, and he chose David to rule over his people. Again, the temple was not an object of worship. It housed the place where he chose to put his name. Seven times his name is mentioned specifically, four times my name, and then other references, a total of 13 times the name is referenced. This is the place where we worship the name of the Lord. The temple, again, is a house of sacrifice. The ark is the centerpiece, and it represented God's covenant. Now, the dedication prayer in chapter 6, verses 12 and following has some stark tones of you, your and an emphasis on my law. We also see a blessing and cursing motif in this chapter. If you do this, then I will do that. If you don't do this, then I will do these things. And so this was the when, not if Israel sinned, but when Israel sinned, they were to pray toward this place making supplication, and God would hear and forgive and bring them back. When they sinned, think about this as part of Solomon's prayer, when they sinned, if they didn't repent, then he was going to discipline them. And prophetically, he's explaining they're going to rebel and they're going to end up in captivity. So when you go to Israel, you will see all manner of Jew at the so-called wailing wall. And they will be wrapped with a, a tallit, a prayer shawl, uh, phylacteries, leather bands around their arms and wrist, on their forehead a little leather box that's all part of the uh, the great Shema, the binding reminding them of the law of God so they have the tallit, the phylacteries uh, some will be kind of bobbing their head, some will be weaving back and forth uh, some will uh, be, uh, mostly guests don't do most most of the uh, locals don't do this, but people will wedge pieces of prayer uh, uh, paper that have prayers on them and the so-called wailing wall, which is really more of a western wall, not the wailing wall. But it's about a football field size, uh, to give you an idea when you go down there, not quite as big as a football field. But you're, you're getting close to where the ark was. Now think about these pictures. And again, you can go online and look at the wailing wall and see all these Jewish men down there praying. What intrigues me, every time I see these Jews praying against the wall, which was as close as they could get to the, where the temple was. And in a sense, they're doing what they were told to do, that they were going back. Now, are they praying for God to hear them and forgive them of their sins? I don't know, but that's what the temple complex was designed to do. Let me read the first three verses of chapter seven, Second Chronicles 7. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven And consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down, and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. It's an overwhelming section of this part of the storyline. After all these years, after the wilderness wanderings, after the temporary tabernacle complex in the wilderness, after David's built his home, finally we've got this facility built, the punch list is completed, the furnishings are in place, the sacrifices begin, and the glory of God is so overwhelmingly otherworldly they bow their faces on the ground of worship but with hardly a moment to take it in. And it catches me every time I read this. Verse 19. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land, which I have given you. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Look at it today. it's what, It's gone. The foundation stones are there, if you will, the Herodian foundation stones, but it's gone. Verse 21, As for this house which was exalted, everyone who passes by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them from the land of Egypt. And they adopted other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this adversity on them. Think about this. This is the dedication to temple. <laughs> and in the same prayer, this is going to happen to you. In some future time, this is all going to be destroyed, and it's going to be a byword. Fast forward to 70 A.D., which we might call the last temple destruction under Titus. Exiles have come and gone. There have been failed attempts to rebuild the temple. And what you see today are just outside foundation walls during Herod's time, not during Solomon's time. Why has the Lord done this to this land and this house? Because they forsook the Lord. Well, we're continuing on in Second Chronicles. We, we pass by the Queen of Sheba. We pass by Solomon's greatest achievements. We, we pass by his tarnished life because of all the foreign women he added to his harems, uh, with the pagan gods he began to worship, his abusive power. And we go all the way past Solomon's life to chapter 10, where we read about a man named Rehoboam, or reckless Rehoboam, as many call him. In some, he's a train wreck. Um, the first thing he does is he ignores the great history and the wise counsel of Solomon's elders. These men who had been aides, like a cabinet To the wisest man on the planet, the most prosperous man in Israel's history, the most peaceful monarchy. And this young, let's call him an adolescent Rehoboam, is acting like an idiot. And he can't find a way to do three simple things that he was instructed to do. Listen to chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders, who had served with his father Solomon, while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? They spoke to him, saying, One, that's my one, not theirs. One, if you will be kind to this people, and two, please them, three, speak good words to them, for the result will be, then they will be your servants forever. Let me read that without my interjecting commentary. How do you counsel me to answer this people? They spoke to him, saying, If you will be kind to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Instead, however, and if you know the story, it's sad. If you don't, it's worth reading in detail. Rehoboam does what too many young or new leaders do when they're given power. They abuse it. Chapter 10, verse 8. But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give, that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? The young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter for us. You shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with heavy yokes, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. So he rejects the counsel of the elders, he rejects the great success of his father, and it becomes a disaster. Two eternal principles come from this story. Uh, Many more, but just two to point out. Number one, don't ignore godly wisdom. In fact, this is pretty easy to implement. Be kind to them, please them, speak good words to them, encourage them, and they'll serve you forever. What's the harm in that? Secondly, don't surround yourself with adolescent or immature or entitled attitudes. Uh, Don't bring a cabinet of people around you that uh, is is ill-principled. I mean, think of How many uh, young professional athletes, the NFL, NBA, whatever it is, and they they get these incredible contracts, they make so much money, but they make a big mistake of running with their posse. So they bring this entourage from their home, Uh, they're paying for all their friends' lifestyles, they blow their earnings, they don't invest them, they don't save them. One, two, three, four seasons, they get injured, they're no longer playing at pro level, they're out of debt, they're unable to earn a living, and then they're friendless. Rehoboam's posse is the perfect example of groupthink. Unwise, disconnected people, they have not been in leadership positions before, they don't align themselves with wisdom, they align themselves with power, and they ignore common sense along with godly wisdom. This ties Israel back. Never forget Egypt. 430 years of slavery in Egypt. Their redemption came to pass on schedule. They established Passover. Do not forget it. Remember, but just like we would have done, they forgot. And bless God, his loving kindness is everlasting. He knows this is going to happen. Let me suggest four lessons from this and see if we can put some shoe leather to our lives. Number one, some things need to be torn down and destroyed. We did not look at Asa's story, but when Asa became king in Second Chronicles 14, he instituted some major reforms immediately. Let me read chapter 14, verses 2 to 6. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, and he removed the foreign altars and the high places. He tore down sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherim and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. And the kingdom was undisturbed under him. He built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed and there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord Lord had given him rest. Some things need to be torn down and destroyed. It took great courage for Asa to tear down the pillars and the Asherim to remove these high places. These were perennial problems like weeds that Israel could not get rid of. It's hard for us to grasp in our modern sensibilities why someone would worship a statue or go up to a high place and sacrifice an animal or, in some cases, a a child or a human. The point is it was a popular pastime. This is what they did in antiquity. It's uh, It's not too far of a stretch to call this spiritual prostitution with false gods. It was enamoring. The culture around them influenced them. And some kings did not have the success or the courage to tear down these altars, these pillars, these Asherim, and these high places. If you go to uh, Jordan, the so-called nabataean area of Petra, uh, if you remember Indiana Jones movie where they're they riding these horses down this, this big wadi to this, this what's called the treasury, which probably wasn't a treasury, but and nevertheless, that picture is uh, in our minds, and, and Steven Spielberg turned it into a, a wonderful place for uh, tourists to go, truly. Um, but you see that in the Nabotovian area, there was a high place, and you can walk up there and get all hot and sweaty and see this is where the uh, ancients Offered animal and human sacrifices. Fast forward back to you and me. What do you, what do I need to tear down and destroy in our lives? Uh, Is it your Instagram account? Is it Twitter? Is it Tinder? Is it Snapchat? Maybe it's a hobby that takes too much of your time and money. Maybe it's the thing you wake up thinking about all the time. It distracts you from your walk with the Lord. It distracts you from your family, from your children, from your work. It may take courage. No, it will take courage. Asa was told by the prophet Asariah, chapter fifteen, seven. but you be strong and courageous and do not lose courage for there is reward in your work. I, I often sign uh, my letters, press on and be of good courage because it takes courage to stand against the culture. It takes courage to say to your children, that's wrong. It takes courage to stand up to a teacher who's uh, giving your children bad information. Um, the prophet said, be strong and courageous. Do not lose courage for why? There's reward in your work. Christ does not want you and me to live in, in weakness and trembling and fear. And not to be too uh, indelicate, but the remedy is not found in personality assessments, not the latest trend that tells you about you know some number or some character figure or some set of initials. The remedy is tearing down the all about me Christianity. Christianity is not to make your life and mine happier, better, and more blessed. Yes, we may find joy. Yes, we will be blessed. But that is not the motive nor objective of our Christian faith. It's not about being true to yourself and true to who you are and finding your passion. That is a distraction. It takes courage to tear down the props. It takes courage to not let your feelings define you. It takes courage to rely on Jesus and not your experience. It takes courage to say, How is my life serving God, not just me? And one thing I love about the Bible, it never says, You know, stop sinning, without giving us something to do. We're to turn away from sin. And this is a living application. It's you turn away from these altars, these pillars, these Canaanite high places, and you worship God, which leads to the second lesson. Number one, you might have to tear some things out of your life. Number two, you set your heart on seeking the Lord. So you turn from the worldly preoccupation with self, and you turn to him. In Second Chronicles 12:14, we read in Rehoboam's life, he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He's listening to his posse. He's listening to this ill-advised, adolescent, immature people. But in Asa's life, chapter fifteen, two, we read, He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, He will forsake you. So the second lesson, set your heart on seeking the Lord, is uh, not some casual thing. This is intentional. Um, The reason uh, Rehoboam did evil is because he did not set his heart on the Lord. The reason Asa has success is that he sought the Lord. So then the question becomes, well, how do I seek the Lord? What does that mean? We all want to follow right counsel, right? We want wise people to help us, right? We want the right rituals. And what I mean by that is what disciplines and devotions are good that foster our relationship. They don't make us better because they're legalistic, but it's good to pray. It's good to be in fellowship and discipleship. It's good to grow in grace and knowledge that requires some discipline. It doesn't happen by itself. To me, it seems uh, this whole thing of setting your heart on the Lord and this idea of turning away from evil, it's tied into two things, time and a common interest, time and a common interest. Um, When I distill friendships, I think of the friendships I've had for 30 plus years. uh, There are two things that are required, time and a common interest. I have to have time to hang out with a person to see if we are going to be friends. And more often than not, there's something that drew us together uh, we had in common. Maybe it's technology, golf, cars, tennis, pickleball. Maybe it's uh, trying out new restaurants. Maybe it's cooking. Uh, maybe it's a lifestyle of dieting, whether it's vegan or or keto or paleo or what nexto. Uh, maybe it's working out. Maybe it's yard work. Maybe... It's a class you take together and you meet some people. That common interest then draws you together, but you have to spend time with that person or couple or whatever to see if you're going to be friends. So if you have play dates with uh, another uh, mom and you take your kids to play in a little park and keep eyes on it, or you're a homeschooler, or uh, you like you're like me, and you like to try out hole-in-the-wall burger joints, and I have friends that I want to do that with. Or maybe you uh, shoot skeet or paper targets, or you like to go to state parks and hike or camp or whatever. Time and a common interest. Why am I waxing eloquent on all this? Because when it comes to your relationship with Christ, seeking the Lord requires time and a common interest. This is a really simple, a really simple uh, formula. You need time in his word, and the word is the common interest. How does God speak to man? Out of experience? Mm. Out of other people? Mm. How does he speak clearly and authoritatively and inherently in his word? So you and I need time in his word. There is no substitute. It's not easy for everybody. Some people don't like to read. Some people have a hard time reading. Others, it's very easy. But that's why the benefit is it just takes a little time. A Bible in your lap in the morning with a cup of coffee. A Bible in the evening before you go to bed. Uh, reading one chapter of Proverbs a day. You need time with the Lord. How do you set your heart on seeking the Lord? I would suggest, I would argue, it's impossible without spending time in His Word. Third lesson from Second Chronicles is that godly men and women come out of the shadows when godly leaders step into the light. Godly men and women will come out of the shadows when godly leaders step into the light. Every leader will be tested again and again throughout your life. And by the way, you may not see yourself as a leader per se, but you do have a sphere of influence where you are indeed leading. Uh, You might be, quote, a lowly employee, but the way you work, the way you treat others, the way you take initiative, the way you help, The way you own your mistakes, the way you encourage, the way you don't whine or complain, that's leading. The way you follow Christ in a marriage when your husband or wife is struggling, that's leading. Uh, Are you patient, loving? Are you pressing on? Are you not childish and peevish? Do you step up and volunteer and take initiative when it's maybe not your job, but you're happy to help? You see, godly men and women will come out of the shadows when a godly leader steps into the light. Years ago when we lived in Northern Virginia in the Washington, D.C. area, um, Cindy and I uh, were involved in in many uh, wonderful experiences. And one was watching a two-star Air Force general uh, take command of the Andrews uh, Joint Air Force Base. Uh, joint Base. At the time, it was Andrews Air Force Base, but now Joint Base, and um, it's uh, it's a big deal. This this house is Air Force One. This is where all the heads of state fly in and out of it. Andrews Air Force Base. When the president leaves the White House in Marine One, he flies to Andrews Air Force Base to get on Air Force One. The vice president, Air Force Two, is out there. This is big stuff, and arguably the most prestigious base in the world. And he is the two-star general over the command of Andrews. And uh, after they hand over the command and change the guard, so to speak, he steps up and he introduces himself. And there's three things you need to know about me. Number one, I'm a Christian. Number two, I focus on safety. And number three, I strive for excellence. And then he unpacked each one of those. Now, you know, you hear that casually. Hey, in my world, to hear someone in military service stand up and say, number one, I'm a Christian. I hardly heard anything else he said. It stopped me in my tracks. This is before the groups, before the command change, uh, Department of Secretary, uh, Secretary of State, all these hoi there on the days. This is a big deal. So we have lunch afterwards with a small group of invited friends with him at, uh, at the base. And the first thing I said to general, how in the world can you stand up there and say, number one, I'm a Christian, and not worry about repercussions? And I'll never forget what he told Cindy and me. He said, look, all my career, I've chosen to put Christ first. And uh, I look at these promotions as from God. And if I am not willing to say uh, I'm a Christian and I follow Christ, then uh, I'm you know, I'm not serving him. And it's up to him whether I'm promoted or not. And then he said, uh, you know, some interesting things happen when you do this. Because Number one, all the other Christians who are in that room kind of sit up straight and they go, huh. This guy was not afraid to say he was a believer, and that gives them courage, and it also uh, you know, it gives them assurance that I'm not going to be on their back if they're a Christian. Secondly, those who are not believers, those who are not Christians, uh, sort of uh, stroke their chin and go, hmm, they might be looking to entrap him or catch him at something, or maybe for the first time they're seeing a good man who happens to be a christian live out his christian life so it's all out there i'll never forget that lesson and that's why i remind myself and others when godly men and women will come out of the shadows when godly leaders will step into the light and the last the fourth lesson we are powerless but our eyes are on god second corinthians chapter 20 verse 12 King Jehoshaphat is outnumbered, overmatched militarily, and humanly speaking, he does not have a chance. A coalition of Moabites, Ammonites, and and others come up against Jehoshaphat and calls Judah, he calls them to seek help from the Lord. And he appeals to the Lord as giving them this land to Abraham forever. Interesting, it always goes back to the land of Abraham. But this is the verse that catches us. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. O our God will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who you are coming against us. Let me read that again. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. God hears the prayer and he responds through his prophet Jehaziel in chapter 20, verse 15, continuing, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. We are powerless, but our eyes are on you. You and I will face insurmountable odds, money, marriage, parenting, Health, relationships, disappointment, injustices—you know—it's it's sort of the hymn to the common man. This is all going to happen, but how do you look at it? Realize you're powerless, but you focus on Him, and this is as simple as Peter in in the boat on the Sea of Gal—Peter uh, in the water in the Sea of Galilee. He took his eyes off the Lord. It's as simple as that. The problems are going to come we are powerless. It's hubris to think we can control our surroundings. It's hubris to think we can control our lives. And so when things touch us that are are wrong, unjust, or just because we're fallen creatures in a fallen context, where are you focused? We are powerless, (laughs) but our eyes are on you. And you got to love Jehoshaphat's prophet when he comes to him. You got to love Jehoshaphat you got to love the prophet that talks to Jehoshaphat. His name is Jehaziel, and he says to him, Do not fear nor be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Sometimes we have self-inflicted suffering. Sometimes we bring things on ourselves. But even at that, confessing of sin, acknowledging our problem, knowing we're powerless, fixing our eyes on Christ, it's his battle. And that, after all, is a life of faith. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.